Oh man, welcome back to 93.94, a music podcast with Travis Roy. How are you today? Hopefully doing awesome. I'm doing pretty awesome because I'm thrilled to have back on the show my friend Chris Deary. Chris will always have a very special place in my heart and on this show in that he was my first guest talking about pavement. And today he came back to talk about Jeff Buckley's one album and what an impact one album could leave on the world, one life could leave on the world. I was familiar with Jeff Buckley. I, of course, heard the name plenty and heard Hallelujah and stuff. But Chris is like a really big fan. So he was happy to come on and teach me all about this important American artist. So check out our conversation and thank you for joining us. Here we go. Hello? What's up, dude? Hey! How you doing? I'm great, man. How are you? Good, man. Good to see you. Cool shirt. Yeah. JD! Classic. I very much appreciate you coming back because it's like, I feel like there's only so many people I can bug with this. Dude, I'll do five or six. I'll do as many as you need. I'll do as many with you as I can like extract from you like a fucking vampire. Yeah, I was really torn between this and uh, August and everything after. I'm doing that on Sunday. Who's uh, coming on? Adam that did the REM episode. Yeah, perfect. into it yeah i gotta ask you before like what's your relationship with this record if any <laughs> zero <laughs> uh, if you're asking okay. me how i came to this album it is because uh you have chosen it to be your choice i literally have never listened to this album until like the last few weeks okay that's good because actually i was you know and we'll talk about it a little bit on the pod i was like wondering i was like i don't know if travis is really into this or not but I think this is a good one to do because it was not a hugely popular album. It's something that progressed over years. Oh my God. And it's reached like legendary status. I know. I know. I'm embarrassed that I had never listened to it before in a way. You know, you can only <laughs> listen to so much. I mean, it's time and place, right? Yeah. I just completely missed it, you know, but I definitely heard about it yeah. enough over time. But to be honest, I often yeah. got him confused with Jeff Beck and I'm like, yeah, that's not really my scene. <laughs> <laughs> Very different. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I've, I've been educated. But how I usually start the show is I ask people, you know, how we know each other. But obviously, you've already been on the show. So I will ask you, what did yeah. you have for breakfast? Okay. <laughs> what did I have for yeah. breakfast? Uh, so, like, I run camps at the Ann Arbor YMCA. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ate until, like, 2 o'clock, and it was a granola bar. And I'm just waiting for, like, dinner after this pod. <laughs> Wait, you've not eaten anything all day but a granola bar? No, and this is kind of how I run. Like, I got this caffeine thing where... <laughs> I'm addicted to caffeine, but I wait two hours after I wake up before I have any coffee, and then I drink coffee throughout the rest of the day. Wow. Okay. Do you want to stop doing this and go get dinner and come back? 
<laughs> no, not at all, man. I'm, I'm good. I'm the total opposite. If I wake up and have not eaten in like the first like half hour, I've probably murdered someone by then <laughs> or have like fallen unconscious. I'm also in this thing right now where I'm like working my ass off and trying to lose some LBs. So I'm, like, oh, okay. Okay. And all that okay. Type of stuff. So food is not important. It's basically water and vodka sodas. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Then I've asked you the wrong question, I guess. Breakfast to me is like, uh, it's the main meal, you know, it's it's my main event, okay. although I eat the same thing every every single morning. <laughs> it's dinner for us. So. <laughs> All right. So how did you come to this album? Yeah, so really interesting story. So this album comes out a day after my 14th birthday. I'm in eighth grade. I'm one year younger than you in terms of grade level. And it's just something that I never came to it back in 94, because if you're thinking of 94, like there's so much competition of what's being played mm-hmm. on 89X and like... 120 minutes and TV. So like the competition of like Green Day and Nine Inch Nails, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam. Then even you got some great hip hop mm-hmm. albums coming out by that time. So like I didn't really get into this until I started working at Record Town at 12 Oaks Mall back in 97. Oh, no shit. You worked there? But I was not mature enough for this album whatsoever back in 97. So like I scooped it up from where I was working. <laughs> maybe I paid for it. Maybe I didn't. And I was not mature enough for this album. I'm just like, yeah, there's a couple decent songs, but like I was in the, you know, grunge. I started getting into punk rock in like 96, 97. So this is way off of my radar. And then probably several years later, back in 2000, I was living out in Kalamazoo. I go home for Thanksgiving break. And, you know, at that time I have five, 600 CDs and several huge booklets. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to take the ones I need for my car and I'm going to leave everything else at home. And I come back after Thanksgiving and the townhouse I was living in with a bunch of people got robbed. Oh. And all of my CDs got taken. So for someone who's a massive music fan, that's just demoralizing. Like, what the fuck do I do? Luckily, I'm still under like my parents' homeowner's insurance if you're that young and you're in college. So I contact, you know, the insurance company and I'm like, you know, hey, we got robbed. All these CDs got stolen. So they gave me an option. We will either give you $3,000 or if you actually know all the albums that got stolen from you, if you write that list down, we will buy those for you. So what do you think I did? Um, I would take the three grand myself. But I think you took the albums. I'm a dead broke college student making like 450 an hour back in 2000. I'm like, let me think about this for a second. <laughs> it took like three seconds and I'm like, wait a minute. I can get 500 CDs of everything that I've ever wanted. I can just fudge what I really yeah. want. So I go off and go into all the Rolling Stone and all this stuff. And I'm like, all right, let's try to find like the best albums of yeah. all time. So <laughs> I basically got about maybe 150 albums I already own. Yeah. And about 350 albums that I didn't own, and one of them was Jeff Buckley's Grace. So that was about 2000, 2001 that I got into it. So that's seven years after this album came Mm -hmm. out, which is just so wild. It's just one of those albums that you hit later in life. Most people I know that like this album, yeah, I don't know a lot of people that seems like they were lifelong fans, although maybe they just didn't mention it. But I also don't really know a lot of people who are older or younger than us that like this album. It seems very specific to our generation, from what I can tell. Yeah, it really is, and it's weird. Like, just scroll on Google right now and go ahead and put in best albums of the 90s. Like, Grace is up there. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, like, this was not something that was huge back in 94. It hit 149th on Billboard Top 200, so, like, even... 
band like Seven Mary Three probably had a top 20 album. Jeff Buckley's Grace never got mm. there at all. So it's something that like you hit way later in life. And I remember when I was working at Record Town, like I remember seeing the album and people were coming in and like asking for, hey, do you know Jeff Buckley's Grace? And I'm like, no, I have no clue. <laughs> None of this has ever played on 89X. And I remember picking up the CD and looking at it. And I got the album right here and I'm like, Look at this guy. I'm like, he's a pretty guy, but it looks like, is this like a Harry Connick Jr. album? I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, literally he's got that fucking like Elvis style coat and that old school microphone. It looks not exactly like the music that's kind of come out of it. <laughs> yeah, is this a Michael Bolton type album? <laughs> Although this guy is sexy as fuck. The nice looking fella. It's like, damn. Yeah, he sure is. Yeah. So that's an interesting way to come about getting to the album. And I'm sure there are people, to go back to my point, I'm sure there are people younger and older that do dig this, but it does seem... Like, it's an epic album for this era. So now here's the big enchilada. Now, I'm not going to pick a least favorite song from this album since I'm a newcomer to it and I'm not going to pick an underrated song for this album because like well actually I take that back I am going to pick a least favorite song for this album but I'm not going to pick an underrated Ooh, song. I'm really interested to hear that <laughs> I won't pick an underrated one because I have like no frame of reference but I'm very curious yeah. about you because I bet you really struggled to pick a favorite on this album it feels like there's a lot to choose from that could be potential favorites so what did you land on it was actually really, really easy. So oh, yeah? this is one of the albums I talked about in the previous episode, the Pavement episode. Please go listen to it. Please do. Crooked Rain. Crooked Rain is amazing. My wife and I connected on this album. So we started dating in 2006, and there's two albums that come to mind that really connected us musically. She listens to all the stuff that I listen to, which is like so key and you don't get that very often awesome. and it was jeff buckley's grace and it was damien rice's oh so it's Ooh. a very like romantic album it's a beautiful album in my opinion so the best song in my opinion is lover you should have come over okay yeah the opening organs is just very very beautiful it's a seven minute song the lyrics are absolutely amazing it's heartbreaking in a way because you know, if you read the lyrics and you listen to it, it's kind of a guy who's in love and he wants to continue this relationship, but he kind of knows it's kind of over. And one of Buckley's paramounts of being so damn good is his lyrics. So the way that song starts, like the first four sentences, looking out the door, I see the rain fall upon the funeral mourners parading in wake of sad relations as their shoes fill up with water. Like, I just love that. I love the lyrics of that. Looking out the door, I see the rain fall upon the funeral mourners Parading in the wake of sad relations as their shoes fill up with water Oh, 
And some of his best songs are seven minute songs. And it's always been something that my wife and I always go back to. So I absolutely love that song. It was definitely one that I considered for my favorite. There was like two or three that I was kind of going back and forth from. And that was actually the first song on the album that stuck out to me. Mm -hmm. My first pass through. Too young to hold on And too old to just break free and run Sometimes a man gets carried away He feels like he should be having his fun But much too blind to see the damage he's done But listening to it over and over again the last two or three weeks, because I've actually listened to this probably more than like I think any other album in preparation for the episode, because I was least familiar with it. But I also I really liked it. Yeah, good. Yeah, I really like it. So what I end up settling on is I think the best song is probably because for me, it's not necessarily the whole song, although I do love the chorus. It's the best moment on the album. Like I found myself waiting for that same moment in the album every single time. And it's the outro to the self-titled song to Grace. That fucking vocal, like Chris Cornell must have just been like, what the fuck is this? You know, and like yep. hearing him, I knew he was a guitar guy, like known for his guitar skills, but oh my God, the vocals there are just, I mean, I've got actually no lie. I have goosebumps right now thinking about it. He is one of the paramount singers of all time, in my opinion. And it's no surprise that him and Chris Cornell were really good friends. Oh, were they really? Yeah, they were. As I was doing a little bit of reading and researching for this episode, I found out that they were really wow. good friends and, and it makes sense. Oh my God. Yeah, it does. And you know, I do love Grace, but also the chorus of Grace is my least favorite part of the album. Oh. I actually really like the chorus. I think it's really interesting. <laughs> That's funny. But, you know, going back to his vocals, I also found like listening to him like, oh man, 
I bet that there's a lot of artists and bands that I've been listening to for a long time that love this album. Listening to mm. especially that song, I thought to myself, Sufjan Stevens loves mm -hmm. Jeff Buckley, I bet. I would bet money mm -hmm. that Tom York loves Jeff Buckley, right? I truly believe, as I was thinking about this, that this album came out at the wrong time. Mm. Yeah. You think of the early 2000s, the early Coldplay, Death Cab, Wilco, yeah. Arcade Fire, even like a Ryan Adams or a Bright mm -hmm. Eyes. There's a lot of Buckley influences. And for this to come out in 94 with everything else that's going on in 94, it's just completely left of center. It's very different than anything else that came out then. Yeah. But at the same time, it also has, to go back to that cover, it does have a kind of a traditionalist feel. And you have songs in there like that Corpus Christi Carol, which sounds almost like a church hymn of some kind. You know, like he's not afraid to go to weird places that aren't immediately commercially viable. Yeah, and it's been said that when he did live concerts, he experimented a lot with his voice, so no concert ever sounded the same. Oh. And your next question is probably, what's your least favorite song? I don't have a least favorite song. I don't think there is a hiccup on the album at all. When I first started getting into this in the early 2000s, Corpus Christi Carol was the one that I would skip. Mm -hmm. But I appreciated like his voice and that like really high falsetto. Mm -hmm. And where it changed for me with that song, it's played in a movie. Which movie? And I wonder if you know the movie it's played in. It's a Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. Oh, I should know it then. Um, it sounds like... Uh... Oh, it's not in Jack Goes Boating, is it? It's Jack Goes Boating. <laughs> I fucking, oh, that I thought it sounded vaguely familiar when I when I heard it, but I thought maybe it was because I was like, oh, the Fleet Foxes love this album. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, I nailed it, or mostly nailed it. I'm proud of myself. Yeah, I first watched Jack Goes Boating maybe three, four years ago, and that song completely changed for me because of like, he's out at the lake and he's got his little boat going and that song comes on and I'm just like, Wow, this is absolutely incredible. So you couldn't pick a least favorite song. I respect that. I don't want any of my guests to feel like they have to choose one. Because <laughs> if, you, if you really truly feel like there is no weak moment on the album, that's one of your favorite albums of all time. That makes sense. But for me, the reason I stayed away from him a lot was because I'm a huge Leonard Cohen fan. And it nah. got to me, man. It fucking, like I Googled right before we got out. I'm like, oh, let's, let's just Google covers that are better than the original. And number two, mm -hmm. between respect and twist and shout, was this and i'm like <laughs> fuck you because i yeah. love leonard cohen so i think that uh, yeah. a lot of the hype over that song really just i just dug my heels in and was like well i'm not gonna you know i just couldn't do it and listening to it now i do think what's obviously not like fucking terrible right it's not a bad song mm -hmm. but for me personally it still makes me just kind of cringe a little or not cringe but it makes me just kind of like it raises my hackles a little bit which is stupid because i love covers 
But I also think that there's yeah. some songs that you just like, they're sacred and they should not be covered. Like who the fuck would cover, you know, Stairway to Heaven? You know what I mean? It just, it's just like, <laughs> and to me, it's like one of those kind of songs, but I get it. It's a huge flex. I think on Spotify <laughs> yeah. for Jeff Buckley, that is the most streamed song is Hallelujah. Oh my God. Yeah. And the millions upon millions, I think. Yeah, like he does it differently just because his voice is so different right. than Leonard Cohen's. But uh, Hallelujah, like if you ever watch these singing competition shows, which my parents are super into, a lot of those competitors on those shows do Hallelujah and they try to do it in the Jeff Buckley tone mm. and voice. And that's just a bad idea. Like you either you're crushing it and you're moving on to the next round or however they run those yeah. shows or you're just eliminated after that. But I completely understand why it's like a little hesitation, especially if you're a Cohen fan. Yeah, and Leonard Cohen is one of the greatest vocalists of all time, even though he's just not a really good singer. And so <laughs> yeah. to have someone to come in and be like, well, I'm an incredible singer. You know, someone's like, well, well, sure, you can do it, but could you write it? Yeah. You know. So I was a little worried about alienating you and my audience, but I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to tell, you know, we got to speak my truth. No, do it. No, you know, <laughs> to each their own. Yeah. So what about underrated songs? Is there any songs in this album that you think are underrated? I think the opening song, Mojo Pin, I really, really mm -hmm. dig. And what I love about this album is like, there's this buildup, but not in all the songs. It like busts out into this big, huge, like guitars or drums or anything like that. And Mojo Pin is one of those. So it starts off the album and he does kind of this like soft wailing at the start that's very quiet. Mm -hmm. And then the guitar kind of starts to drum in. And it's, I think it's like a five and a half minute song. And I think that's really underrated. It's one of those albums where you can't just listen to a couple songs. I truly think, although it's not a concept album, you really have to listen to it all the way through. That, I think, is really true. I'm a big fan of that generally, but that's partly why Corpus Christi Carol, I think, works as well as it does. It's a nice kind of like segue in the album between other parts. And getting back to Mojo Pin, it is a really fitting opener for the album because yeah. the album is like... I don't know. It, it certainly has its own vibe. You know, there's Jeff Buckley's style and it's very distinct. But Eternal Life, for instance, like it has like this thick bass. It almost sounds like a grunge song almost. And then Absolutely. you have other songs yep. on the album that just couldn't be further from that. So Mojo Pin, I think, kind of fits nicely between all that. Absolutely. If only you come back to me Feel it at my side
so you have no criticisms whatsoever for this album then? You know, it's tough. Like, I really don't. Right. So right now, my wife and I, we have about 150 records we started collecting back in 2000. And right now we're going through every single record because we want to condition them and like put a little layer mm -hmm. on it and make sure that they're all clean and everything. And we got about 30 albums left. And it's funny because we go back and forth, like picking who does what album. And it's like, oh, my God, you just picked Nirvana Unplugged. I thought that was going to be one of the last 10. And Buckley is still up there. So there's Buckley, a couple of Radiohead albums, a couple of Neil Young albums that haven't been played yet. But it's a really fun kind of competition we got going on right now. It's just difficult. There's moments of songs that I don't really get into, but another song that was probably the one that was played on the radio and maybe there was a video is the third song, Last Goodbye. Mm -hmm. I think that's a song that the Counting Crows probably wish they wrote. Okay. <laughs> probably his most commercial song. And that one's a really good one too. But I think that may be one of his more popular songs on the album. I do know that he was on 120 Minutes at some point because in a brief scrolling, I saw him being interviewed there. I didn't actually listen to the interview, but I know was on there at least once so someone thought oh this is an alternative genre but <laughs> yeah and you know what that's it right alternative is just a catch-all for i don't know so uh, that's kind of where he lands yeah it's just like what genre is this i don't even know there's a lot of like jazz influences and you know with the drums and like his voice is just so otherworldly it's just so different and it's shocking to me that it came out in 94. yeah and there's definitely some blues feeling in there i mean he was a studio musician, right? And his father mm -hmm. was a musician for my cursory Wikipedia yep. look at his life. So I'm like, okay, this guy probably really genuinely loves all of these different genres and is trying mm -hmm. to gather them all together underneath of his wing and succeeds. It's unique and kind of genre bending or defying. kind of one of the great music what ifs because something that we haven't mentioned yet is he died in 97 yeah this is the only album he ever put out and i looked up the other day like what are the great one album bands or artists and you know there's like the sex pistols in there but like you know with johnny rotten there was other stuff he did after sure. that with pil there's Lauren Hill. She obviously did some other stuff, you know, Postal Service. Ben Gibbard was, you know, in Death Cab for Cutie. Like, this is the one guy that, like, really, there's nothing else. There's a live album and a couple covers, but you really only have about 25, 30 songs from him. Isn't there some sort of, like, sketches of something, like this, yeah. the album he was working on? I forget the name of it. Yeah, the album he was working on in 97, there was a ton of pressure on him as well in 97 because this album started, you know, initially when it came out, you know, commercial failure, mm -hmm. even critical failure. It's one of those artists or bands that years later, you know, Rolling Stone does this a lot where they like redo albums and re-review Yeah, because them they and... realize they were wrong and everyone loves it, so they better cover their ass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Weezer's Pinkerton is like a perfect example where they gave it like one star <laughs> and like 10 years later, five yeah. stars and Buckley's the same thing. That's funny. So you never, of course, saw him live. None of us really got a chance to do that. Nope. Any memories tied to the album that you didn't get a chance to, to mention yet? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I talked about in 2000 how 
all of a sudden all these CDs show up at my doorstep. It was absolutely amazing to be like, oh, my God, all these Stevie Wonder albums that I never owned or mm -hmm. anything like that. And I remember for the next probably five or six months, every time I drove back home to Novi from Western Michigan, it was a little under a two hour drive. There were two albums that were always in my car that I listened to over the next probably two, three years. And it was Jeff Buckley's Grace and it was Neil Young's Russ Never Sleeps. Hmm. That gave me the opportunity to really like fall in love with Jeff Buckley's Grace is because being in a car by myself, listening to it and be like, OK, now I can understand what's going mm -hmm. on with this. You know, you're in your early 20s and every girl you meet, you're in love with. And that's what I felt like Buckley was talking <laughs> to me in much of this album. So uh, it's something that I have certainly, you know, told other people, dude, you got to pick up this album. It's incredible. I've really, really enjoyed it over the years. And, you know, if I, I think of 90s albums, it's like every once in a while I make lists. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those albums that's in my top 10, but there's nothing else in that top 10 that sounds remotely close to this. It just dug its way under your skin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I like that he has an approach to romance and to heartbreak that is kind of refreshing and that it's seriously romanticized, but it's also kind of like defeatist, I think. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> I totally agree with that. Uh, what song do you want to use to end your episode with? I mean, it's probably Lover You Should Have Come Over, but uh, I mean, Last Goodbye is so incredible as well. We're not going to do Hallelujah, so <laughs> it's probably Lover You Should Have Come Over. All right, we'll run that one through twice, maybe. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, another reason why I probably didn't get into this, and you probably are not the same as me as this, but I feel like once I started to get into music and, you know, it's the early 90s, it's the grunge era. Mm -hmm. If you came out during that era and you were a solo artist, I was like, fuck you. I only want to hear bands. I'm not into solo artists whatsoever. And it has nothing to do with like 70s or 80s solo artists. But like, I felt like that was the thing for me. I'm like, yeah, I'm not into it. You're a solo artist, whatever. You're weak. I need a full band. I was thinking about this last night when you and I first started like really getting into music and getting cassettes and CDs. If you think about it, we were only dealing with maybe 30 years of music that we were interested That's a good in. Point. You think of like the mid 60s till now, and now us being in our early 40s, we're dealing with 60 plus years. So it's like if you are 20 years old and you're just trying to get into like all these great albums of all time, you've got a lot of work to do. You're right. I mean, I often feel like I was born at the tail end of a good thing but in this sense i think that when it comes to movies and music both we were pretty well situated to enjoy what came before us and not necessarily yeah. have to dig into dixieland and all that kind of stuff although you can and i encourage it of course but like yeah you know the 60s to, to now yeah that's a good point and maybe that's partly also why and i bet this would defeat my point earlier about young people i bet I'm sure more young people have probably started getting into it too that maybe help boost those numbers. They don't know like when it came out, it flopped, right? They just know, oh, this is one yeah. of the most highly regarded albums from that time, so I better give it a listen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, young college kids that are searching back on these lists and looking at, oh, you know, let me check out the 90s era and they start looking at some of this stuff, they're probably like, oh, well, Grace was probably huge back <laughs> in 94. Not at all. Not at all. Anything else you want to say about him or this album before we move on? Yeah, it's just, I mean, his voice is so incredible. It's almost genre bending 
some of the stuff he does. It's hard to say, like, is this a breakup album? Is it an album yearning for love? And I don't think it's on the level of, like, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, which I think is, like, the most heartbreaking breakup album of all time because he was going through a divorce at that Mm. time. But, like, I put it on that level. Like, lyrically, he's just so incredible. And it's really a shame that he passed away. Like, in 97, he went out for a late night swim in the Mississippi River and got caught up in the tide and died. He was working on that second album, and it's like, where would he have been? I mean, I think he was 30 or 31. You know, he was still pretty young and just starting to really get into his musical shoes there. And I feel like we really lost somebody who could have really been somebody who would be really important. And, you know, at this point, he would have been almost 60 years old, which is, you know, crazy to think about. But I think he really would have had a place specifically once we hit the 2000s. I think he would have had the opportunity to become a really big artist. I think you're right. I mean, I want to argue and be like, well, obviously, he is a really important person. This album has great impact. But (laughs) no, you're, you're right, because if this alone could have such resonance Yeah, he probably would have been a Springsteen or, you know, whatever of our generation kind of. He certainly feels like a head above a lot of what else was coming out at the time. As much as I'd never listened to him before, in terms of vocal ability alone, I'm judging him on that mainly. And songwriting as a whole, like his whole approach to songwriting, his craft is, again, like not afraid to be seven minutes long, not afraid to go shorter, just, you know, whatever works. And I think that it was a good formula that would have been awesome to see where he could have gone with that. It's a real shame. I know he did go out singing Zeppelin though. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. I feel like he would have been somebody that maybe wrote songs for other people, guested on a lot of stuff. You know, he was under a lot of pressure to get that second album done because it really started to pick up steam over the next three years. And, you know, maybe that second album would have been absolute trash, but I'm sure he would at least sounded really good because that voice was just really incredible. Unless he got polyps or something and his voice got <laughs> fucked up, he would have been doing some good stuff for a long time. I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Are you listening to anything else these days? What else are you rocking out to? Yeah, well, like I said, we're just plowing through these records right now and we've got a few left. I keep fucking it up because I keep going to the record store and picking up some new stuff. I went to the record store the other day and I was talking to the guy that works there and I've gotten to know him over the last few years. And I went there and I picked up two albums. I picked up R.E.M.'s Document from 87, but then I also picked up also from 87 Operation Ivy's Energy. And he's like, wow, this is really interesting that these are the two albums you're buying right now. I'm like, oh, and I also bought uh, another 97 album, uh, Sleater Kenny's Dig Me Out. And he's like, you are all over the place with what you're buying here. And I'm like, well, I'm buying for myself. I'm buying for my wife. I'm all over the place. (laughs) Right on. So I'm not sure I understand, maybe in case I'm not the only one that's confused. Walk me through exactly what you're doing with your albums, because it sounds like you're taking them down and listening to them. And that's a process. Yeah, so we are trying to condition and clean every one of them. So we have like a little spray and you like buffer them and clean them up a little bit. So all the albums that we have, we are listening to it, taking it off the needle and then cleaning it and then putting it off to the side. And we cannot listen to that album until we've gone through all of them. Why can't you listen to them until you've gone through all of them? Because we got to go through all of them. It's just a little game. And it's uh, fun. Be- okay. It's fun that we're doing that because it gives us a chance to hit some of the records that maybe we scooped up 
from you know someone that gave it to us or new albums that are coming in there are a few exceptions because mm-hmm. i've been looking for smashing pumpkin siamese dream for a very long time and you could not very find expensive. it under a hundred dollars and then about a month ago i was at the record store underground sounds here in ann arbor and i found it for 40 bucks and i immediately grabbed it wow and the guy that works there is like this is our last one he's like we just got like six of them in yesterday <laughs> you got lucky yeah, we did. Well, that sounds fun. I guess I uh like I thought you were like putting them in some sort of like packaging where you were like sealing them up for <laughs> no. you know, so they were like not to be touched again or something. You know what I mean? Like people... No, we just want to go through all of them, clean them up, make sure they're all conditioned well because after a while they start to sound a little grimy, which I like, but you got to clean that needle constantly, you got to clean yeah. those records constantly. So this right here, Buckley, we have not hit yet and we're about 30 albums left so it'll be fun because i feel like when we get to the final 10 it's going to be kind of the 10 albums that we love the most you're playing selection yeah you're going to learn what's the most loved album in the house yeah (laughs) that is fun all right are you ready for your 90s trivia i am ready so i did try and tailor this to you not sports related you like movies i like movies i have a movie related question for you i'm ready but ziggy your dog Yes. He's a very cute boy. So you are a dog family now. We are. <laughs> you and Christine. Yet again, we are. Yeah. And you know that I'm a dog lover. So I have in front of me a list of the five most iconic dogs, in my opinion, from the 1990s. Just on your own mind. Don't Google anything. No searching. Are you searching? You look like you're searching. No, not at all. <laughs> so off the top of your head... <laughs> What do you think are the top five most iconic dogs of the 1990s? Actual dogs, not cartoon dogs, like physical, real-life dogs from film or TV. And let's see what kind of overlap we have. Jesus Christ, this this is difficult. Just off the top of your head. You don't have to come up with five, just as many as you do. Uh, Beethoven. Okay, so Beethoven Beethoven movies. Of course, the Beethoven movies (laughs) was the first one I thought of, too. That says a lot. Turner and Hooch. Turner and Hooch was 89. What year was Snatch? It's 2000, isn't it? Snatch was 2000. Man, I'm lost now. Movies or TV? Or commercials. Or commercials. Oh my God. The, the uh, uh, Taco Bell Chihuahua? <laughs> I was about to say, Yo Quiero Taco Bell. <laughs> Yo Quiero Taco Bell. All right, so that's two. That's one of them? Absolutely, that was one of the ones I thought of. Absolutely, that fucking dog was on every... 40 it minutes everywhere on TV. Everywhere. Yes, everywhere. All right. Anyone else come to mind? Uh oh, what was that one fucking movie? Air Bud. <laughs> I was gonna say a dog that plays sports, <laughs> Air Bud. They've made like 20 of those things. I watched none of them, but still from the 90s, I think dogs, I think Air Bud. I feel like they probably did 101 Dalmatians movie back then. They did with Glenn Close, and that didn't make my list, but I think that does make sense to be on yours. Give me a fifth (laughs) one. We'll see if it's the same as I got. Oh, man. I'm trying to think TV. Think sitcoms. Did did they have a dog on uh, Mad About You? No. They did. What? That, they did? Yeah, they had a dog. I, I can't think of his name right now, but I'm currently watching Mad About You. and so <laughs> Of course uh, you are. Still doing Mad About You. Still doing Mad About You. I think so. we talked about that in the first episode. <laughs> I think so. So, yeah, I forget that dog's name, but that makes sense. Pretty iconic dog. I was thinking, actually, um, 
Eddie from Frazier. Oh, no, that was a huge thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I remember I had a t-shirt of that damn dog. Oh, okay. Yeah, you should have thought of that then. And the other one I came up with uh, was Verdell, the dog from As Good As It Gets. Oh, yeah. There you go. Good one. dog. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> All right. So which of these dogs is the best dog? The best dog. What's the list again? Give me the five that you had. Beethoven, Airbud, Yokira Taco Bell dog, Verdell, or Eddie. Or you can, of course, include nameless man about you dog. All these dogs suck. Verdell does not suck, I'll have you know. Well, I'm not a Chihuahua guy. I mean, we have a wired-haired Dachshund. He's a he's like a Yorkie mix. Verdell is? Wasn't he like a... Yorkie? What is Eddie? Is he like a... Eddie's a Jack Russell Terrier. Uh, yeah, those dogs are a little yappy. Yeah, but he's well-trained. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with Eddie from Frasier. Like, he, he was a pretty big deal. He was a big deal. He's probably the most famous other than Airbud and Beethoven. I would say he was more famous than Yokiro Taco Bell Dog, which feels kind of racist whenever I say it. I don't know. When are you guys reason. doing Airbud on Cinema 9? <laughs> Not anytime soon. <laughs> All right. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on again. I really appreciate it. I owe you one. <laughs> anytime, my friend. <laughs> it was to talk to Chris Deary again. Such a great dude and so kind of him to come back to the show and indulge me and you <laughs> talking about Jeff Buckley. Clearly the album means a lot to him. The artist means a lot to him and it means a lot to me that he would come on and share that with us. So definitely appreciate it. I just got back from seeing my nephew who is not quite too but talking up a storm, but he talks, you know, like someone who's learning to talk talks. So he's got some things down. He could say car, you know, he could say mama, dada, you know, he can say all that kind of stuff. There's other words that he's really struggling with. In particular, which is very amusing, is the word cracker. He really likes animal crackers, but um, when he tries to say cracker, the word fuck comes out. Clear as day. Fuck. Just fuck. I think he's trying to say crack. And it's coming out, fuck. So he's just hanging out at my dad's house yelling fuck over and over again because he wants crackers, which is hilarious, right? So and there's other words that he's struggling with as well, like my name. He tries to call me Travis and he calls me Trash. I'm Uncle Trash. Is it weird that I don't hate it? Because I don't hate it. Would you want to come on the show, you listening, you person right now? Uh, maybe you don't talk that great either talk that well. Maybe you don't talk that well. Maybe you're not that great at talking either. I'm not that good at it. It doesn't stop me. I edit the fuck out of these things. I have a stutter. I have a lisp. 
I have weed brain, so I have to like take these long gaps where I try to grope around in the fucking drawers of my head to find what word it is I'm looking for. If you want to come on, I promise I will edit you to make you sound as good as I possibly can. And we don't all have to have these perfect voices like Jeff Buckley or Chris Cornell, who we mentioned on this episode. When I started this podcast, I thought people would kind of be clamoring to do Super Unknown, but so far no one's signed up for it. So maybe you want to come on the show and talk about Super Unknown with me. That'd be fun. In other album from 1993 or 1994 let me know uh, my email is 9394podcast@gmail.com. i'm on the predictable social media you can text me if you have my number if you know me personally you don't have to know me to be on the show i recently recorded my first episode with a perfect stranger i'm really excited about it so yeah okay we'll leave it at that i've made my pitch have a good rest of your day night whatever it is that you're doing Goodbye. Ninety-four, a music podcast with Travis Roy is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue.